0: Thanks, Vanessa. Gee, I, I just wonder what team she's going to be rooting for today. I, I just, uh, I, I have a word of knowledge. I, I think it could be, it starts with a V. I'm not sure, though. <laughs> uh, how y'all doing this morning? It's really good to come together and uh, worship God together, pray for one another, and study the Word for a little bit. We're in this uh, series uh, just kind of starting on the, on the Beatitudes, uh, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Before I get into that message, uh, however, I, I want to address uh, an issue, um, kind of as it actually relates to uh, the message in some ways, as you'll see here. But as uh, I guess as this is to be expected, we have, as we're approaching this election day, uh, gotten some questions, uh, mainly from newcomers and uh but questions about um, where Woodland Hills stands on this amendment vote that's coming up on whether gay unions should be called marriages or not. And we've had some questions about where Woodland Hills Church stands on homosexuality in general. In fact, I got a strongly worded letter uh, several weeks ago uh, from a person who doesn't attend Woodland Hills Church, but kind of chastising me and uh, the leadership of uh, the church for not jumping on this bandwagon of churches here in the Twin Cities that are rallying people uh, to vote yes for this marriage amendment and want to know why why uh, we don't have the courage to take a stand on that. We at one point thought we were going to do a whole message on this. Um, in fact, I, we may have even announced that, I don't recall. But on further reflection, um, I at least came to conclude that Neither this nor any other political issue is worth spending a whole sermon on. I'm glad you agree. See, we come together as ambassadors of the kingdom of God, and we're in a foreign country. And our mission is simply to be good representatives of our kingdom and of our king, not to pretend that we're experts on uh, how to run the affairs of this foreign country that we find ourselves in. At the same time, there have been questions, and um, especially in light of the fact that this culture that we're in so fuses, thoroughly fuses the kingdom of God with the kingdom of this world, and it creates a lot of confusion. So as a, as a word of clarification, I, I thought we should say, not spend a whole message on it, but say something uh, as we're coming into this election time. So here's the thing. we At Woodland Hills Church, we believe that the Bible is the word of God, and we try to interpret it as honestly as we can and follow it as, as thoroughly as we can. As we interpret Scripture, and that's in keeping with the traditional uh, view that the church has had throughout history, uh, we've always taught that, that God's ideal for marriage is for a man and a woman, woman to be covenanted monogamously for life. Um, and so our, anything that, that departs from that Any sexual activity outside of that, whether it's people of different genders or people of the same gender, misses the mark of God's ideal. And that's the biblical definition of sin. Hamartia is the word, and it means to miss the mark. And anything that would break from that ideal, whether it's adultery or divorce and remarriage or polygamy or simply lusting after someone in your heart, that misses the mark and therefore is by uh, it falls into the biblical definition of sin. So this is where the church has stood throughout history, and this is where Woodland Hills stands on that. Now having said that, I have to immediately add this. We are emphatic on confessing, as we just sang a moment ago, that we are all sinners. And we're passionately opposed to any kind of pharisaical sin scale that would rate some sins above others. And that always rates its own sin as the least serious of sins. Uh, We're passionately opposed to the traditional tendency of the church to see itself as a sort of holy club and to uh, determine that the sins of those on the inside of the club are less serious than the sins of those outside the club. Those are the deal-breaker sins, the real serious sins. We've always been particularly passionate about calling on the church to repent of her past sins towards gay people, uh, to repent of the way the church has Uh, tended to scapegoat gay folks and uh, to bar them from the kingdom. And the ironic truth is this. The church in America tends to be guilty. The the, 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 the sins that the church tends to be most guilty of are those, and, and that it tends to dismiss as the least serious, are typically those that are most emphatically denounced in Scripture. I mean, you find literally thousands of verses Denouncing idolatry. The idolatry of hoarding more than you need when there are people, your brothers and sisters around the globe, who have less than they need. Uh, The idolatry of hoarding more food than you need when there are brothers and sisters around the globe who have less food than they need. One billion of them starving. Uh, The sin, the idolatry of getting your life, your worth, your significance from uh, what you achieve or what you possess or who you impress or thinking that you're holier than others. Uh, thousands of verses uh, denouncing that kind of idolatry. And the church in America is massively guilty of these sins, mentioned thousands of times. And yet it downplays those sins. Hardly ever talks about them. while it makes homosexuality sort of the sin of all sins, the sin par excellence, even though it's mentioned at most three times in the Old Testament and three times in the New. What's wrong with this picture? In fact, the church in America not only minimizes those sins that are mentioned thousands of times, but there's large segments of the church that actually Christianize them. People feel righteous because they have got more wealth than others. Uh, They have more food than others. They feel righteous because it's a sign that God's blessed them. and We're God's special people because of that. Not only that, but there are dozens of passages, especially in the New Testament, that that denounce in strong terms, denounce judging others and slandering others and gossiping about others and accusing others. And the church in America tends to be massively guilty of those sins as well. In fact, as I mentioned last week, uh, the archenemy of God in the Bible is Satan. And he's called the accuser, the accuser of the brethren. He's the one who goes about pointing out people's sins and holding it against them. And yet the, the shocking truth is that the church in America has... Uh, for much of its history, largely played that very role. The role of the accuser, positioning itself as the moral superior uh, people who are going to be the guardians and protectors of truth and righteousness, and they think it's their job to point out people's sin and hold it against them and legislate against th- their, their sins, never our own. In, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that we're kingdom ambassadors, which means that we're given the ministry of reconciliation. And he defines that as not holding people's sin against them. It's the opposite of accusing them. It's the opposite of accusing as, as, as Jesus was the opposite of the Pharisees. Because that's exactly what the Pharisees did. They pro, played the role of Satan uh, in, in the world by accusing people of, of their sins and holding it against them. Positioning themselves as morally superior. We are, if we do our job as as ministers of reconciliation, we would be known as the last people on the planet who would ever hold anyone's sin against them. That's our job, to proclaim that, to live that out. It's the opposite of being an accuser. In fact, Jesus commands us. and in, in this way, he... he uh, uh, frees us from the pharisaical idolatry and positions us to do our job as reconcilers well. He commands us to, whatever sin we think we see in someone else's life, we're supposed to regard that as a little dust particle compared to the two-by-four sticking out of our own eye. Our, our, Paul says, and here's a saying that is worthy of everyone to say, that I am the worst of sinners, First Timothy 1. It's the opposite of accusing. Uh, we're to position ourselves as under others not ever over others and see whereas judging others drives people away when we adopt this humble attitude this self-effacing attitude it attracts sinners of all sorts of var- of all varieties it's why jesus even though he was the one sinless person in history he attracted the prostitutes and the tax collectors they wanted to hang out with him we have passages in the Gospels that tell us that he went to parties with them. He, they, he fellowshiped with them. They were his friends. But they steered clear of the Pharisees. For the same reason that the groups that the church scapegoats stay clear of the church. The Pharisees were out there trying to pass laws against them. See, I, I, I'll say this straightforward. I thank God for the increasing number of gay folks that attend Wooden Hills Church they are a source of encouragement to me. I, I, I thank God for them. Amen. Amen. And we and we welcome you. It's an it's, it's evidence that at least to this degree, we're manifesting that, that humble, that humble and beautiful, um, non-judgmental kind of holiness that the Son of God had that attracts people rather than that ugly, judgmental. Uh, false pharisaical holiness that the Pharisees had. That the love of God and the holiness of God always attracts rather than repels. Uh, several weeks ago, I had the honor of uh, being invited to spend an evening with our sacred space group here at, the, uh, at our refuge ministry on Thursday night. Sacred space is our support group for gays and lesbians and bisexual and transgender people. And we call it sacred space. And I would tell you that it, it, as I was there the other night, it felt sacred to me. It felt sacred. It felt like this is the kind of, of uh, group that Jesus would hang out with. In fact, I know from the gospel, it's the kind of group that he did hang out with. And as we spent the night together, uh, it was uh, Jesus was tangibly present there. Uh, the, these folks are at different places in their walk with God, as are we all. Uh, and for some of them, their sexuality isn't, the issue that God is working with right now. For some of them, it is, but for others not. And that's okay. Because we all know from our own experience that uh, God doesn't work at all of our issues at once. And only God and those who are closest to us can have the wisdom to know what issues should be worked at when and at what pace. And everybody else who's not in the inner circle, their job is simply to love and bless them and, and trust that God is working in their life. And then to leave it at that. And to be honest, some of these folks uh, at at Sacred Space wouldn't necessarily agree with our stance on God's ideal uh, for for marriage. But they feel a love and an acceptance that is greater than that difference. And so they want to hang out. And I thank God for that. Um, And in fact, that difference is something that that we can talk about as we're on the way. Um, as we talk about all of our differences as we walk and as we uh, move towards Christ-likeness, uh, these differences come out. But see, we discuss these differences on the way, walking hand in hand, holding hands, as we journey uh, towards Christ-likeness as we're following Jesus. Uh, we talk about these differences from the inside of the walk, not as a precondition for getting in the walk, as though we were holier than anybody else, you see? And it's that discussion that in part helps transform us. Uh, and so we embrace them as brothers and sisters in Christ, who are, like all of us, on the way. And if that seems too radical for you, like, "Oh, I don't know about this. Uh, I assure you that we're not out radicalizing the love and grace of Jesus. <laughs> if it feels too radical to you, I, I suggest to you that, at least consider the possibility that's because you've been conditioned by a traditional mindset in the church that has always had a prejudice. Against people whose sexual orientation is anything other than heterosexual. And now about this marriage amendment issue. Let me say this. Caesar, we're ambassadors stationed in this foreign country. And Caesar, in this land, ask our opinion about what we think would be good for the broader culture. So we call those unions marriages or not. And so you get to vote. And if God allows you to vote and your conscience allows you to vote, knock yourself out. But see, in light of what I've just said, do you think that I, as a leader in the the church, that it would be my place to tell you whether or not you should vote or how you should vote if you're going to vote? Right. No. (laughs) Does my education uh, in Scripture and theology, does that make me an expert on how to balance freedom and moral issues in a pluralistic democracy? I assure you, it does not. In this letter that was written to me, uh, the person said, this is a black and white issue. Christians are called to oppose all sin, so uh, uh, stop being cowardly and tell your people to take a stand against sin. It's all black and white, so clear. But do you realize that that's exactly what the Taliban is trying to do? That is Sharia law. And do we really want that? And where do we ever see Jesus doing anything like this? Our job is to follow Jesus. Does he ever do anything like this? And if he had done something like that, would he have been attracting the tax collectors and the prostitutes? Uh, I I, I submit to you he would not have been. In fact, he had all the power in the world, and yet what did he do with it? He didn't use that power to try to impose laws uh, to outlaw all sin. He rather used that power to get himself crucified on behalf of all sinners. John 13 is so beautiful about this where it says, Jesus, knowing that all things had been submitted to him, he put a towel around his waist and got down and he washed the dirty, smelly feet of his disciples, whom he knew would betray him before uh, sunrise. That's what you do with all the power. That's what the power looks like in the kingdom. He never used it to impose Sharia law on folks. But if you really want to go and outlaw all sin, well then let's start with your own. Which happen to be the ones that Scripture is most emphatic on denouncing. Uh, let, let, let's, uh, let, let's imprison anybody who is living at four times the standard of the world average, which is where the American, uh, average American lives, and yet who hoards more resources than they need and eats more food than they need. Uh, let's imprison them. If you want to outlaw sin, let's start with the big ones. That one. And yet, I don't think any of us really want to go there. So, I I hope you can see how completely screwed up this kind of thinking is. Uh, It sounds so righteous. We're going to take a stand against all sin. And yet, uh, that's not the way it certainly would work in a democracy. Uh, We should uh, be opposed to our sin before we try to impose it on, on others. My job as a leader in the church and the job of all pastors is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's what the Bible says. It's to empower people to serve and, and to love others and to manifest the character of God as we advance the kingdom of God. It's not to rally folks or to try to get power to run the kingdom of the world. Two very different things, and somebody listening to this maybe is thinking. I, I, I suspect someone's going to be thinking to themselves, "Oh boy, he just doesn't know how much is at stake here. Uh, he doesn't understand that we're in a slippery slope, and government's going to take away our our rights. They're going to take away our right to call homosexuality sin, and 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 we're going to be thrown into prison. and And he just doesn't understand that if Obama gets elected and the liberals take over, well then then America as we know it will come to an end." And believe me, I know all of that fear propaganda. People send it to me, <laughs> all right? <sighs> it's one of the downsides of my job. Uh, people send it to me, and I know all the arguments for and against. Believe me, I know that. But see, I want to say this, but without commenting on any of that, whether you think it's true or not. If you have any fear in your life, I submit to you, you're not keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, and you're not putting your trust in God. <sighs> He's not given to us a spirit of fear, but of power, and a love, and sound mind. And look at presidents come and go, and and laws come and go, and policies come and go, politicians come and go, and even nations, all of them, come and go. But Jesus Christ reigns forever and ever, and of His kingdom there will be no end. And that's the hope of the world. Put your trust in that. We're ambassadors in this foreign country, and uh, and and our job is to do what our King calls us to do. Caesar invites your opinion, and if you've got one and your conscience allows you, then feel free to give it. But never forget that it's not how you vote, if you vote every four years, that's gonna make a difference in in, in the course of history. It's how you vote every day of your life. It's whether or not you vote for Jesus with every decision you make. That's the vote that's gonna make a difference. And my job and the job of pastors is to empower people to make that vote day in and day out. That's where the future of the world lies. Our attitude, I I suggest you, our attitude should be exactly that of Paul's when he says this. What business is it of mine, is it of ours, to judge those outside the church? God will judge those outside. Could it get any clearer? Our job is to leave all judgment to God. Because we're called to be ministers of reconciliation, which means we don't hold people's sin against them. Leave that to God. And our job is to vote yes with every decision we make. And the way we vote yes is, is by manifesting God's character... Uh, by loving and serving all people, by loving and serving gay people and bisexual people and transgender people, uh, lesbians, by loving and serving tall people and short people and thin people and robust people, by loving and serving Democrats and Republicans and Green Party and communists, by loving and serving uh, people who cheat and people who swear and people who who harm their bodies and people who judge others, yes, even them, and people who are think they're holier than others. Our job is to love all people at all times and all situations and all circumstances, no if, ands, buts, exceptions, exemptions, suspensions, or anything of the sort. It's just to love. Live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. That's our job. And that's what we rally around. All right. Amen. 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 Okay. Well, it wasn't a whole sermon. <laughs> it's kind of a better part of one, though. Okay. Let's get to the message for today. Uh, yeah. All right. Here we go. So we're dealing with the Beatitudes, and you'll see that actually that, that little mini sermon, uh, was, it relates to this. Uh, so we're looking at the Beatitudes, uh, these blessings. Remember, these Beatitudes aren't rules that we're to follow. Uh, these are, these are uh, descriptions of what it looks like to follow Jesus, what it looks like to be part of the blessed revolution. And so today we're gonna look at the first two of these Beatitudes. So we're entitling this message, The Dependent and Those Who Mourn. This is how we're salt and light, right? Uh, if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to get that message because it sets the framework for this whole series that we're in. Uh, to be salt and light, we've got to be distinct from the world, look different from the world. Um, and uh, uh, in doing that, we're a sign of the covenant. That's, what, that's the function of salt in the Old Testament. Uh, and we're a sign of the covenant when our life is a billboard putting on display our unique kingdom and our unique king in a way that invites people to come into this blessed revolution, to come into the kingdom. It's the kind of salt and light that Jesus was that attracts tax collectors and prostitutes. It's the kind of salt and light that doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't moralize over others and, uh, and put them under your, your authority and thinking, position you as holier than others. So here's what the first two uh, Beatitudes look like. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Verse 2, Beatitudes. Poor in spirit in a first century Jewish context. Um, it had it meant basically someone who's depleted, someone who's broken, someone who's empty. And it could refer to uh, someone who is materially in poverty, physically poor, but it could also refer to anybody, whether the rich or poor, who's come to the end of themselves, who's empty, who's depleted. This phrase, those who mourn, um, The best commentaries I found argue that that refers to a specific kind of mourning that was that you find in the Old Testament. Uh, Most of what Jesus says comes out of an Old Testament context. So those who mourn, it referred to the mourning of the Jews uh, as they were in exile. You read a lot about this in Isaiah, for example, and uh, you find that phrase, those who mourn are those who are in exile and who are under oppressive pagan rule. And so this phrase can refer to anybody who's lost all that they have. Uh, They've lost all that they could rely on. They feel like foreigners, uh, aliens in a foreign land. I like the way the message uh, paraphrase of the Bible uh, puts it. For reading purposes, I think the message is about the the, the best thing out there. It's a paraphrase, not a translation, but it's very readable. And more often than not, I think he captures the essence of a passage uh, well. Uh, The message... Bible translates or paraphrases this verse like this: "You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope." I like that phrase. With less of you, there's more of God and His rule. That's the kingdom of God, the reign of God. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're at the end of your rope. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Uh, it's, it's to come to the, no, you, you no longer can rely on your own resources. You can no longer rely on your own ingenuity. You can no longer rely on your own strength to get things done. Uh, you're no longer independent and self-reliant. And Jesus says you're blessed if that's the case. And blessed are those who have lost what's most dear when you've lost the resources that you usually use to be self-reliant. You've lost the resources that empower you to figure things out on your own and to, uh, be independent on your own. Jesus calls both of these blessed. In our culture, we would call them cursed. But Jesus calls them blessed. And it really takes us to the heart of the kingdom of God because it takes us to the heart of the fall. And follow me on this. This is It this really is, is foundational for, for, for the rest of the, the Beatitudes that are going to follow. Uh, when human beings rebelled against God, it, we, we find this expressed in, in Genesis 3 with the story of Adam and Eve. Uh, our, our rebellion against God was really a declaration of independence. Humans were created to be completely dependent on God. God created us so that, that we, we were supposed to get all of our, our core worth and identity in life and, and sense of being loved and having importance and our security from God alone, nothing else. God created us with this vacuum in our soul because God delights in pouring himself out and giving himself away. So he creates beings who desperately need him to give himself away. It's a beautiful arrangement. And his design was that he was supposed to pour himself into us, and then as we get full of him, we overflow towards one another. And so we become, you know, representatives of his towards one another. We, we, we mimic, we model his love towards one another. That's still our job description. Live in love as you've been loved. That's it. And, and then we overflow towards the animals and the earth. We have loving dominion over them. That was God's design in the beginning. But the whole thing is predicated on our trusting Him and being totally dependent on Him. When we rebelled, however, Eve believed this deceptive picture of God so she could no longer trust God. And so instead of trusting God for life, she reached out and grabbed the, the, the forbidden fruit and and the premise of the whole thing is that she thought she could do better than just depend on God. She thought she could do better. She could be wise like God. She thought she could actualize her full potential uh, on her own by, by declaring independence from God. She was trying to have the power to meet her own needs, uh, to do life on her own, to be her own Lord. And that's the essence of all sin. This is This is the essence of our fallen state. Instead of getting all of our life from God, we still have this vacuum... But instead of going to God to get filled, get that vacuum filled, we try to fill ourselves with people and things in our environment. And these all become idols. And idol is anything that plays a role that only God can play. And so we try to get ourselves to feel full and feel important and feel like life's worthwhile because uh, you know, we, we have so much power or because we're so rich or we have so many possessions and we drive such a nice car or we wear such nice clothes or we have such a good reputation or because we're so smart or because we're so beauty, beautiful or we're so sexy or because we can sing so good or because we're holier than other people or so we tell ourselves uh, these are all false ways of getting life. It's the essence of of life in this fallen world. It's what Paul calls the flesh. This is life in the flesh. It's life lived as a lie, as though God were not Lord of our life. Uh, and, and in all of this, we're trying to be independent. Life becomes a feeding frenzy, where people are desperately trying to get the attention and... Uh, the wealth and the riches and the reputation, whatever their idol is, they're trying to get that to feel full, like life's worthwhile. It's a feeding frenzy, constantly scrambling to get the life that God wants to give us for free. And the truth is, is that because this vacuum in our soul is, will never go away, we become addicted to idols. We're addicted to that which we rely on to give us life. And the, the thing is, we're under this demonic delusion that... We're in the process of, of being self-reliant and independent. But the truth is that in trying to be independent, we're becoming more and more dependent. We're addicts. Uh, we, we totally depend on being noticed or on, on getting the money or the possessions and the wealth or, or whatever it is that gives you life. We totally depend on that. The way an addict depends on whatever chemical they use uh, to, to feel okay with themselves. So if your idol is how much power you have, you desperately need to have power. And if you don't have power, well, then you, you, you go through withdrawals. You You get mad or you get depressed. If your idol is your beauty, and then then if if you start to age, it just might happen. You start to age, and 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 you don't meet the world standards of beauty. Well, then you start to get mad, or you start to get depressed, and you start to work feverishly to try to hang on to to, to, to if, if at all possible. Uh, if your idol is is your holiness, well, then if some preacher calls into question your supreme holiness, well, then you get mad or depressed. And maybe there are folks when they hear this message, they're gonna get mad or depressed uh, because I'm calling into question their idol. They've got to have it. They're addicted to it. Whatever your idol is, you're totally dependent on that. And the thing is, is that because this vacuum in our heart is something that only God can fill, it's bottomless. And so we never have enough. We never have enough. No matter how much power you get, you want more. No matter how much money you get, you want more. You need more. You wonder why these billionaires still work 12, 16 hours a day. When they already have more money than they could possibly spend. Well, see, it's not about the money. They're addicted. It, it, it's the meaning of the money to them. This is what makes their life okay. It's what gives their life significance. And and it, it, you never have enough. If if getting attention is your your uh, uh, idol, well then, just because you got it today doesn't mean you'll have it tomorrow, so you've got to work at it again. It, we kinda, it's exhausting, constantly having to work to get ourselves full, uh, feeding off of these idols on which we are addicted. And it is never enough. And, unfortunately, because... The world has a limited supply of whatever it is that 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 you use to feel okay with yourself. Well, because there's a limited resources, we have to compete with one another. So it's a feeding frenzy, and it's a competition. And so, you know, if there's someone more beautiful than you in the in the room, uh, well, then you've got to do something about that. You know, uh, this is why people gossip so much. By tearing others down, uh, they feel a little less pathetic about themselves. They got to, they got to, it's a way of filling themselves. And so we compete. And all, the source of all misery in this world and all conflict and all hatred and all violence is this. Compete with one another to try to get the idol that we need. It's the source of, 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 of all the bloodshed. We're trying to be independent. We're trying to be self-reliant instead of trusting God. And that causes all the, the misery that we find in our world. And because we're in this flesh framework, this fallen framework, we we tend to admire those who are independent and self-reliant. We admire that. The winners at the the idolatry game. And we look down on people who are needy. It tends to be the case, especially here in America, because uh, this country is founded on rugged individualism and rugged independence. So we really admire the independent and, and the individual, right? And we have a right. We have rights. Uh, to liberty and 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 we have a right to to freedom and a right to pursue happiness and and we have a right to do whatever we want to do to protect our stuff we have a right to our stuff and a right to protect it and and if you we have a right to have our boundaries and if you step over those boundaries I have a right to a lawyer uh, to sue you for doing that you know rugged individualism rugged independence we admire that look down on on, on folks who are needy but see. Jesus exposes the demonic deception that we're under when we think that that is really independence. And so he says, blessed are you when you don't have that. Blessed are you when you're at the end of your rope. Blessed are you when you've lost what is most dear to you. Uh, Blessed are you when you feel like you're in exile. Blessed are you when you're empty, because now you can finally perhaps get filled with God. And blessed are you when you don't have stuff to cling to, because now you're finally in a position where you can let God cling to you. Um, and and, and this is, now you're on the road that leads to eternal life. When you have nothing to fill yourself with, now you can be filled with God. Nothing to embrace, now you can be embraced by God. Now you're in the position where God created us to be, where our, all of our needs are being met by God. See, this is why Jesus said it's hard for rich folks to get into the kingdom of heaven and for powerful folks and for anyone who succeeds at the world's idolatry game. Because if you're if you're one of the winners at the world's idolatry game, well then you can keep feeding yourself. You know you won; the resources are yours, so you can keep feeding yourself. And as long as you're feeding yourself, you can dull that ache in your soul that hungers for God, and and you can you can distract yourself from that. If you've lost, if you're a loser at the world's idolatry game, well now you're in a a position where you can more readily uh, accept. Lean on God to fill those needs. Precisely because you don't have the stuff the world offers. That's why Jesus tells us that the best thing that can happen to us, the best thing that can happen to us is for us to lose. The best thing that can happen to us is for us to come to the end of ourself. The best thing that can happen is for the the, the, the addiction that we have to be broken and to go through that withdrawal uh, period uh, where we mourn. The best thing that can happen is for us to lose the wealth and to lose the beauty and to lose uh, the talent and whatever it is that we're relying on to feed ourselves in an idolatrous way. Best thing is for us to lose that because now we can get we can feel our need for God and feel our emptiness and feel our our alienness so that we can be comforted by God. It really makes you wonder. It's got to make us question um, this common mantra that we find out there. It says that we are in this country in America so blessed because we have so much stuff. That's a blessing. It's, it's proof to many that we are favored by God. Look at We've got so much food and we have so much wealth. Really. Really. Um, now, you, that can be a blessing. The wealth can be a blessing if we use it in a kingdom way. Okay, that can be a tremendous blessing. But if we don't, it becomes a curse. The blessing is neither here nor there. The wealth is neither here nor there. What, what, what makes it a blessing or a curse is what, you, what do you do with it? Do you submit it to the king or not? And the trouble is, is Jesus and, and uh, Paul warn us, uh, the, the trouble is that there's something very addictive about wealth and about power. Um, it, it, it takes a lot of character to have it and yet not feed off of it. To have it and yet genuinely still rely totally on God. Uh, not many people can do that. It's like smoking. You know, some folks can have a cigar occasionally or a cigarette and, 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 that's it. You know, and then they go into a couple months and no problem. Others, and it tends to be most, you have one or two and boom, you gotta have a third and now you have to have a pack and now every day you have to have two packs or whatnot. Or with alcohol. Some folks can have a drink and, and they're fine. Others, you have one drink and boom, you're gone. Uh, three months later, you come out of your stupor, you know? Um, so, some people can handle it, but most people can't. And that's that's how it is with wealth and, and power and all the things that that uh, we might use uh, as, as idols to fill the hole in our soul. If you're good at it and you're really getting fed, it makes it a whole lot harder to genuinely rely on God. And all the evidence suggests that most Americans, at least, can't handle the wealth. I mean, all studies show that the average american uh average, average evangelical american gives uh, roughly 3% of their income away gives 97% to themselves we we live at four times the global average um and yet we keep 97% of what we get for ourselves while there are people in the world who are starving 1 billion are starving to death and yet we keep 97% to ourselves that is evidence of an addiction there's something very screwy here. You can tell when a person's addicted when they don't behave naturally. When they, when they do, when their behavior is just screwy, you know, they, they do crazy stuff to feed themselves, right? Uh, well, this is bizarre for people who are followers of Jesus and who have uh, ca- called him Lord, and he tells us to share and to live with outrageous generosity and so on and so on. And yet, 97 percent is spent on ourselves. What could explain this? What explains it, folks? Is addiction. We're we're, we're addicted. And so Jesus says to come into the kingdom, we've got to die to that. We've got to die to that. We must die to our idol addiction. Die to all that we once held dear. Die to our fierce independence and and our, our rugged individualism and die to our rights. To come into the kingdom means we give everything over to the king. And we become utterly dependent on our king once again. The condition for entering the kingdom, the condition is to give everything, including our very life, over To the king, so it becomes property of the king for him to use however he sees fit to advance his kingdom. And we're not earning God's love. No, we've got that already. We're not achieving anything, getting brownie points with God. Oh, look how much I gave up. No, it's not like that at all. It's just that this is what it means to enthrone him as king of our life. (laughs) This is what it means to have a right relationship with God. We turn over everything to God, acknowledging that he owns it because, as a matter of fact, he does own it. And to the degree that we think and act different than that, we're not being rightly related to him. You see how how it goes? So to come under his reign is by definition to surrender everything over to him. That's why Jesus said in in Luke 14, he says, those of you who do not give up everything, everything you have cannot be my disciples. Be clear. If you don't give up everything, you can't be my disciples. Sometimes Jesus calls people to literally give up everything. He told that rich young ruler... Um, go and sell everything you have and give the proceeds to the poor. And the reason is because Jesus knew that this guy was seriously addicted. And the only way he's going to have any hope of coming into the kingdom is to go cold turkey. End it now. Stop now. For most, Jesus allows us to legally own some things. He, his disciples still legally had houses and legally had their fishing boats and legally owned some clothes, but they understood that it wasn't theirs. Uh, God was giving it to them on loan, and so they got to use it. And so, we're to give everything over to God. And then, what He tells us, we can enjoy. We can enjoy, and so enjoy it, and don't feel guilty about it. Enjoy it. But if He says give it away, or if He says share it, if we're if we're in the kingdom, we must give it away or share it, because it's not ours to decide what to do with. It's His. It's the most fundamental posture of a kingdom person. What? He, what do you want to do with this that is yours? Should I enjoy it or should I give it to others to enjoy? And see, to the degree that we hold on to things as though they were ours, we've got to go through the mourning of giving them up. And it can be a mourning process. We're, we're getting weaned from our idol addiction. And it's not a pleasant experience. In fact, all spiritual disciplines are really about this. they are The process of getting weaned from uh, our idol addiction... And it can hurt. As those of us who have gone through uh, coming off of any kind of chemical addiction, you know, it, it, it's not pleasant. It's, it can be painful. It's, 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 but but we, we die to ourselves. This is what it is to die to ourselves. Paul says he crucifies himself daily. He says he buffets his body like an athlete, athlete in training. That's not necessarily a pleasant experience, but it's absolutely crucial if we're going to be kingdom people because it means we surrender everything over to him. On top of that, there's been times and places throughout history where becoming a follower of Jesus meant that you were rejected by your loved ones. And there's that, that kind of mourning, where you're treated like an alien. That, there's that kind of mourning. There's, uh, where, where in some periods in history, and yet today in some places, people are, if you follow Jesus, you're thrown into prison. You're beaten. You're tortured. Sometimes you're executed. And so there's that kind of suffering as well. And even to this day in our culture... Even though it's officially open, not hostile to Christianity, if you get radical about following Jesus, there will likely come times when family members and friends will at least view you with suspicion. Uh, you're acting weird. You're not conforming to the norm. And whenever somebody doesn't conform to the norm, those who, who are, if I have their security in being normal, are going to get worried. It's like you're, you're not fitting in. They might even get mad at you. You start doing Christmas in a Jesus kind of way instead of in a cultural kind of way and, and you can get some disgruntled people and you may experience some rejection. There's that kind of mourning uh, where you're treated like an alien. But be okay with that because as a matter of fact, you are an alien. And so we're, we're this is the, an appropriate kind of mourning that we go through. Jesus calls all of this blessed. To our culture, it sounds like a curse because our culture is just so into uh, being self-reliant. And avoiding pain, not going through mourning, living life as happy as possible. And so what Jesus calls blessed, the culture calls cursed. But this, folks, is the blessed revolution. Because when you lose everything, then you can gain the one thing you really need. When when you, you have died to all that this life offers, now you're in a position where you can find true life, praise God. When you become utterly empty, now you're in a position where you can find out what it is to really get full. When you have surrendered everything that, that that you once held dear, now you're in a position where you can be embraced by the one who, in truth, is the, the, the dearest of all. Uh, when you've made yourself poor, now you can find out what it really is to be infinitely rich. And when you've lost all your rights, now you can find out what it is to have true freedom. And when you've gone through mourning, now you can find out what it is to have true joy. And all of these things are indicators, road signs, that we're on the right road. The road, the revolutionary road that leads to eternal life. See, that, that's true blessing. The house and the cars and the, and the insurance and the nice bank account and, and whatever, those are, are nice things. If God lets you enjoy them, enjoy them. But those aren't true blessings. No, the true blessing, the true blessing is when, when, when there's really only one thing you really need. One thing. And that is the love of God that is revealed on Calvary. That is blessed. That is freedom. That is joy. When when you're in the position where you no longer need to chase after idols and you can opt out of the feeding frenzy game, uh, that's blessed. That is freedom. That is joy. When when you're in, in a, a situation where you know that what you mean to God and you know you have unsurpassable worth and you're feeling a sense of fullness because of what God thinks about you, and you no longer need to be trying to get full of other things. Now now you're blessed. Now you've discovered true freedom. Now you can discover true joy. When, when you no longer have to chase after stuff and you're free to give stuff away. You know, easy come, easy go. That's true freedom. When, when, when you own it, but it doesn't own you because you've surrendered it all to the king. That's true freedom. When you no longer have to worry about your reputation. Uh, you know, in fact, when you no longer need to live because you know that you're never going to really die. You live forever. Now you're free. When a person has realized that when, they, when you do life like you're, you've already died, now you can really live because you don't cling to anything. Life is, is can be lived passionately when you're not no longer clinging to stuff, because you know that your the, the, your creator clings to you, and that's the source of everything that you really need. That is true blessing. That is true joy. That is true freedom. And that is how we're salt, and that is how we're light. Because as we manifest this, Amen. This is what it looks like to be a person in a covenant relationship with God. And so, in living this way, if these are qualities that, that characterize our life, now we're, we're, we're the sign of the covenant. Now we're our billboards, and now we're light that point people in a direction of a different king, praise God. And point people in a direction of a different kingdom, a beautiful kingdom, and a different way of life, and a different way of getting their needs met, a different way of being free, praise God. Uh, now we can be used by our Abba Father to further his purposes in the world. Now we are salt and light. Praise God. So I, I'll end with these two questions, Right? Number one, are you really at the end of your rope? And we use that phrase sometimes, uh, like usually to mean somebody who is like just nervous and, and about, about to go crazy. But I don't mean it like that. No, if, if you're at the end of your rope in a kingdom way, there'll be a, a, there should be a sense of peace about this. But that just means, do you rely on yourself? Do you do life in a mode of self-lordship? Or do we rely on God? What what do we depend on? Here's one thing that that maybe it would be helpful. If you're you're genuinely following Jesus, it should happen now and then, maybe even with some regularity, that you find yourself in situations where if God doesn't show up, you're in trouble. If, If your life is always comfortable... That means you're not being moved out of your comfort zone and that doesn't look like the kind of Savior that we find in Scripture. He's always leading us out of our comfort zone um, and where we, we need Him to show up. Uh, if we're following Him, He will on occasion tell us to get out of the boat like He did Peter and walk on water. He'll occasionally lead us to do things that don't fit common sense. He'll occasionally lead us to welcome somebody that we don't know, talk to strangers, uh ex- In various ways, manifest love to people on the street. He'll help us do weird things. He'll sometimes lead us to give, give away more money than we think we can afford. And sometimes he calls people to do just outlandish things, like this guy that we saw in Father of Lights, um, uh, that movie we showed here a couple weeks ago, where he was the CEO of a Fortune 500 company and, and, uh, God calls him to sell it all, give it away, and move to China. I didn't even know what he was going to do there, but he ends up, he and his wife, uh, working in an orphanage for kids with a physical and spiritual uh, spiritual, uh, uh, physical and mental disabilities. In China, these kids get thrown away because they have a one-child policy, and, and so now they're just showing love to these kids. That sounds like Jesus. That looks like something that the Savior does. So ask yourself that question. And if the answer is no, you're always living in a comfort zone, then don't try to crank out uh, you know, the, the beatitude, but rather just reorientate your life around Jesus. And follow him and listen to the promptings in your heart. The second thing I, I'll leave you with is this. And this is a good exercise. I encourage you to do this on a regular basis. I, I find it to be very helpful. Um, I, In prayer, envision. because imagination is so powerful in worship and prayer. It's, it's the center of, of our, it's our inner sanctum. And in prayer, I envision, first of all, my life. I just it represent me. And then as I see myself, I I say, you're owned by God. And then I represent myself giving me over to God. And then I go through all the things that I own. All things that maybe you might hold dear. You envision your house, you envision your car, whatever it is. And as you envision each one, just say, you are the property of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I even represent it. I even see kind of a like a little name tag on it, owned by Jesus Christ. And I give it away. And then the other things that are maybe uh, less tangible, but you represent them in certain ways. Your reputation or recognition or, or acclaim or whatever it is, you represent things that are important to you and you give it away. It belongs to God. And then, most difficult, I represent loved ones in my life. And as I envision them, they too belong to God, not me. And so I give my wife to God and I give my kids to God, I give my grandkids to God. I can enjoy them, uh, but I cannot own them. And realize in doing this, you're you're really rehearsing for death because when you die, it is all taken away from you. And so it's a way of practicing death. But that's exactly how we're supposed to live. We're supposed to die, right? Die to ourselves, and now you can really live. We, We do life best, and we do it only in a kingdom way when we cling to nothing. We dance through life with open palms, enjoying what he allows us to enjoy, being free with everything else. Mm. I'll close in prayer, and as I do, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up here. And if there's anything that you have that you would uh, that you're carrying with you uh, uh, that could use prayer, I encourage you to come forward here and, and, and pray with these folks. That that's and during the worship time as well. Take advantage of uh, these folks who feel called to be our, our intercessors. Mm. Father, um, Abba Father, as we leave this place. We pray, Holy Spirit, will you seal on our hearts what we've heard, what we've learned. God, uh, seal on our hearts the importance of living in love and being free of judgment. I pray, Lord God, that you seal on our hearts the passion to be salt and light to this world, the passion to follow you and to have your priorities and your values, and to be free of the priorities and values of the world. It's a radical call, Lord, uh, but it's a radically beautiful call. Help us be salt and light to all we come in contact with throughout this week. And remind us to be engaged in the spiritual discipline of surrender, turning everything over to you because in truth, it belongs to you. In Jesus' name. And all of God's salt and light people said, Amen. 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 God bless you guys. Go out and be salty.